Greetings, listeners. This is I, once again, D.B. Spitzer, here to talk to you about Black Clock Audio Tales. Yes, it is February, and that is the month of Jules Verne, and brought to you by bunnyslippers.com. Check out their cool new Highland cow slipper. It's all shaggy like a Muppet. It's like brown Muppet fur or a extra woolly Highland cow. Look fashionable. Look cool. Keep warm. Bunnyslippers.com. Hey, did you know that we're talking about Jules Verne? And did you know that you can find Black Clock Audio Tales on the Facebook and the Twitter and the Instagram? Mostly Facebook and Instagram these days. I've never been big on Twitter. And let's see what else. You can listen to Jules Verne stories this month on Black Clock Audio Tales, as I said. And also we will be talking about... Uh, the Cthulhu Mythos and Egyptology and Nephrim Ka. Maybe a little bit of Naralethhotep will sneak in there as well. All right, thank you so much. And remember, there's going to be probably something by David Heath of Dave's Corner of the Universe and eventually Dave's Underground Goat Shenanigans. And also, we will be having probably some experts on the show talking about Jules Verne at some point in time in this month. And let's not forget, I don't know, the best show there is, People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos, which is our monthly show, last Tuesday of the month. And if you want to hear more about the Cthulhu Mythos, go through our back catalog or check out pgttcm.com or go to podbean.pgttcm.com Find the RSS feed. Find the show notes. Find out where the store is and how to help support the show so we can have further episodes in the future. And let's not forget you could go to paypal.me M-E, slash p-g-t-t-c-m and donate a buck or five or twenty or fifty or a million dollars and help the show grow. I mean, we're doing pretty good right now, but we could have another Beowulf month, and who wants that? Not me. All right, let's get on with the show. Let's have some Jules Verne, and let's go to that underground city. All right, here we go. Recording by Anne Boulay. The Underground City by Jules Verne. Chapter 9 The Fire Maidens. A week after the events just related had taken place, James Starr's friends had become very anxious. The engineer had disappeared, and no reason could be brought forward to explain his absence. They learnt, by questioning his servant, that he had embarked at Granton Pier. But from that time there were no traces of James Starr. Simon Ford's letter had requested secrecy, and he had said nothing of his departure for the Aberfoyle mines. Therefore in Edinburgh nothing was talked of but the unaccountable absence of the engineer. Sir W. Elphiston, the president of the Royal Institution, communicated to his colleagues a letter which James Starr had sent him, excusing himself from being present at the next meeting of the society. Two or three others produced similar letters. 
But though these documents proved that Starr had left Edinburgh, which was known before, they threw no light on what had become of him. Now, on the part of such a man, this prolonged absence, so contrary to his usual habits, naturally first caused surprise and then anxiety. A notice was inserted in the principal newspapers of the United Kingdom relative to the engineer James Starr, giving a description of him and the date on which he left Edinburgh. Nothing more could be done but to wait. The time passed in great anxiety. The scientific world of England was inclined to believe that one of its most distinguished members had positively disappeared. At the same time, when so many people were thinking about James Starr, Harry Ford was the subject of no less anxiety. Only, instead of occupying public attention, the son of the old overman was the cause of trouble alone to the generally cheerful mind of Jack Ryan. It may be remembered that, in their encounter in the Yarrow Shaft, Jack Ryan had invited Harry to come a week afterwards to the festivities at Irvine. Harry had accepted and promised expressly to be there. Jack Ryan knew, having had it proved by many circumstances, that his friend was a man of his word. With him, a thing promised was a thing done. Now at the Irvine merrymaking, nothing was wanting, neither song, nor dance, nor fun of any sort, nothing but Harry Ford. The notice relative to James Starr, published in the papers, had not yet been seen by Ryan. The honest fellow was therefore only worried by Harry's absence, telling himself that something serious could alone have prevented him from keeping his promise. So the day after the Irvine games, Jack Ryan intended to take the railway from Glasgow and go to the Dockart pit. And this he would have done had he not been detained by an accident which nearly cost him his life. Something which occurred on the night of the 12th of December was of a nature to support the opinions of all partisans of the supernatural, and there were many at Melrose Farm. Irvine, a small seaport of Renfrew, containing nearly 7,000 inhabitants, lies in a sharp bend made by the Scottish coast, near the mouth of the Firth of Clyde. The most ancient and the most famed ruins on this part of the coast were those of this castle of Robert Stuart, which bore the name of Dundonald Castle. At this period, Dundonald Castle, a refuge for all the stray goblins of the country, was completely deserted. It stood on the top of a high rock, two miles from the town, and was seldom visited. Sometimes a few strangers took it into their heads to explore these old historical remains, but then they always went alone. The inhabitants of Irvine would not have taken them there at any price. Indeed, several legends were based on the story of certain fire maidens who haunted the old castle. The most superstitious declared they had seen these fantastic creatures with their own eyes. Jack Ryan was naturally one of them. It was a fact that from time to time long flames appeared, sometimes on a broken piece of wall, sometimes on the summit of the tower which was the highest point of Dundonald Castle. Did these flames really assume a human shape, as was asserted? Did they merit the name Fire Maidens, given them by the people of the coast? It was evidently just an optical delusion, aided by a good deal of credulity, and science could easily have explained the phenomenon. However that might be, these Fire Maidens had the reputation of frequenting the ruins of the old castle, and there performing wild Strathspeys, especially on dark nights. 
Jack Ryan, bold fellow though he was, would never have dared to accompany those dances with the music of his bagpipes. Old Nick is enough for them, he said. He doesn't need me to complete his infernal orchestra. We may well believe that these strange apparitions frequently furnish a text for the evening stories. Jack Ryan was ending the evening with one of these. His auditors, transported into the phantom world, were worked up into a state of mind which would believe anything. All at once shouts were heard outside. Jack Ryan stopped short in the middle of his story, and all rushed out of the barn. The night was pitchy dark. Squalls of wind and rain swept along the beach. Two or three fishermen, their backs against a rock, the better to resist the wind, were shouting at the top of their voices. Jack Ryan and his companions ran up to them. The shouts were, however, not for the inhabitants of the farm, but to warn men who, without being aware of it, were going to destruction. A dark, confused mass appeared some way out at sea. It was a vessel whose position could be seen by her lights, for she carried a white one on her foremast, a green on the starboard side, and a red on the outside. She was evidently running straight on the rocks. A ship in distress, said Ryan. Aye, answered one of the fishermen, and now they want to tack, but it's too late. Do they want to run ashore, said another. It seems so, responded one of the fishermen, unless he has been misled by some. The man was interrupted by a yell from Jack. Could the crew have heard it? At any rate, it was too late for them to beat back from the line of breakers which gleamed white in the darkness. But it was not, as it might be supposed, a last effort of Ryan's to warn the doomed ship. He now had his back to the sea. His companions turned also, and gazed at a spot situated about half a mile inland. It was Dundonald Castle. A long flame twisted and bent under the gale, on the summit of the old tower. The fire maiden! cried the superstitious men in terror. Clearly, it needed a strong imagination to find any human likeness in that flame. Waving in the wind like a luminous flag, it seemed sometimes to fly round the tower, as if it were just going out, and a moment after it was seen again dancing on its blue point. The fire maiden! The fire maiden! cried the terrified fishermen and peasants. All was then explained. The ship, having lost her reckoning in the fog, had taken this flame on the top of Dundonald Castle for the Irvine Light. She thought herself at the entrance of the Firth, ten miles to the north, when she was really running on a shore which offered no refuge. What could be done to save her if there was still time? It was too late. A frightful crash was heard above the tumult of the elements. The vessel had struck. The white line of surf was broken for an instant. She heeled over on her side and lay among the rocks. At the same time, by a strange coincidence, the long flame disappeared as if it had been swept away by a violent gust. Earth, sea, and sky were plunged in complete darkness. The fire maiden, shouted Ryan for the last time, as the apparition, which he and his companions believed supernatural, disappeared. But then the courage of these superstitious Scottishmen, which had failed before a fancied danger, returned in face of a real one, which they were ready to brave in order to save their fellow creatures. The tempest did not deter them. As heroic as they had before been credulous, fastening ropes round their waists, they rushed into the waves to the aid of those on the wreck. Happily, they succeeded in their endeavors, 
although some, and bold Jack Ryan was among the number, were severely wounded on the rocks. But the captain of the vessel and the eight sailors who composed his crew were hauled up, safe and sound, on the beach. The ship was the Norwegian brig Motala, laden with timber and bound for Glasgow. Of the Motala herself nothing remained but a few spars, washed up by the waves, and dashed among the rocks on the beach. Jack Ryan and three of his companions, wounded like himself, were carried into a room of Melrose Farm, where every care was lavished on them. Ryan was the most hurt, for when with the rope round his waist he had rushed into the sea, the waves had almost immediately dashed him back against the rocks. He was brought, indeed, very near lifeless on to the beach. The brave fellow was therefore confined to bed for several days, to his great disgust. However, as soon as he was given permission to sing as much as he liked, he bore his trouble patiently, and the farm echoed all day with his jovial voice. But from this adventure he imbibed a more lively sentiment of fear with regard to brownies and other goblins who amused themselves by plaguing mankind, and he made them responsible for the catastrophe of the Motala. It would have been vain to try and convince him that the fire maidens did not exist, and that the flame, so suddenly appearing among the ruins, was but a natural phenomenon. No reasoning could make him believe it. His companions were, if possible, more obstinate than he in their credulity. According to them, one of the fire maidens had maliciously attracted the Motala to the coast. As to wishing to punish her, as well try to bring the tempest to justice. The magistrates might order what arrest they pleased, but a flame cannot be imprisoned. An impalpable being can't be handcuffed. It must be acknowledged that the researches which were ultimately made gave ground, at least in appearance, to this superstitious way of explaining the facts. The inquiry was made with great care. Officials came to Dundonald Castle, and they proceeded to conduct a most vigorous search. The magistrate wished first to ascertain if the ground bore any footprints, which could be attributed to other than goblins' feet. It was impossible to find the least trace, whether old or new. Moreover, the earth, still damp from the rain of the day before, would have preserved the least vestige. The results of all this was, that the magistrates only got for their trouble a new legend added to so many others, a legend which would be perpetuated by the remembrance of the catastrophe of the Motala, and indisputably confirm the truth of the apparition of the fire maidens. A hardy fellow like Jack Ryan, with so strong a constitution, could not be long confined to his bed. A few sprains and bruises were not quite enough to keep him on his back longer than he liked. He had not time to be ill. Jack, therefore, soon got well. As soon as he was on his legs again, before resuming his work on the farm, he wished to go and visit his friend Harry, and learn why he had not come to the Irvine merrymaking. He could not understand his absence, for Harry was not a man who would willingly promise and not perform. It was unlikely, too, that the son of the old overman had not heard of the wreck of the Motala, as it was in all the papers. He must know the part Jack had taken in it, and what had happened to him, and it was unlike Harry not to hasten to the farm and see how his old chum was going on. As Harry had not come, there must have been something to prevent him. Jack Ryan would as soon deny the existence of the fire maidens as believe in Harry's indifference. 
Two days after the catastrophe, Jack left the farm merrily, feeling nothing of his wounds. Singing in the fullness of his heart, he woke the echoes of the cliff, as he walked to the station of the railway, which via Glasgow would take him to Stirling and Callender. As he was waiting for his train, his attention was attracted by a bill posted on the walls, containing the following notice. On the 4th of December, the engineer, James Starr, of Edinburgh, embarked from Granton Pier, on board the Prince of Wales. He embarked the same day at Stirling. From that time, nothing further has been heard of him. Any information concerning him is requested to be sent to the President of the Royal Institution, Edinburgh. Jack Ryan, stopping before one of these advertisements, read it twice over with extreme surprise. Mr. Starr, he exclaimed, why, on the 4th of December, I met him with Harry on the ladder of the Dochart pit. That was ten days ago, and he has not been seen from that time. That explains why my chum didn't come to Irvine. And without taking time to inform the president of the Royal Institution by letter, what he knew relative to James Starr, Jack jumped into the train, determined to go first of all to the Yarrow shaft. There he would descend into the depths of the pit, if necessary, to find Harry, and with him was sure to be the engineer, James Starr. They haven't turned up again, he said to himself. Why? Has anything prevented them? Could any work of importance keep them still at the bottom of the mine? I must find out. And Ryan, hastening his steps, arrived in less than an hour at the Yarrow shaft. Externally nothing was changed, the same silence around. Not a living creature was moving in that desert region. Jack entered the ruined shed which covered the opening of the shaft. He gazed down into the dark abyss. Nothing was to be seen. He listened. Nothing was to be heard. And my lamp, he exclaimed. Suppose it isn't in its place. The lamp which Ryan used when he visited the pit was usually deposited in a corner, near the landing of the topmost ladder. It had disappeared. Here is a nuisance, said Jack, beginning to feel rather uneasy. Then, without hesitating, superstitious though he was, I will go, said he, though it's as dark down there as in the lowest depths of the infernal regions. He began to descend the long flight of ladders, which led down the gloomy shaft. Jack Ryan had not forgotten his old mining habits, and he was well acquainted with the Dochart pit, or he would scarcely have dared to venture thus. He went very carefully, however. His foot tried each round, as some of them were worm-eaten. A false step would entail a deadly fall, through this space of fifteen hundred feet. He counted each landing as he passed it, knowing that he could not reach the bottom of the shaft until he had left the thirtieth. Once there, he would have no trouble, so he thought, in finding the cottage, built, as we have said, at the extremity of the principal passage. Ryan went on thus until he got to the 26th landing, and consequently had 200 feet between him and the bottom. Here he put down his leg to feel for the first rung of the 27th ladder, but his foot swinging in space found nothing to rest on. He knelt down, felt about with his hand for the top of the ladder. It was in vain. Old Nick himself must have been down this way, said Jack, not without a slight feeling of terror. He stood considering for some time, with folded arms, and longing to be able to pierce the impenetrable darkness. 
Then it occurred to him that if he could not get down, neither could the inhabitants of the mine get up. There was now no communication between the depths of the pit and the upper regions. If the removal of the lower ladders of the Yarrow shaft had been effected since his last visit to the cottage, what had become of Simon Ford, his wife, his son, and the engineer? The prolonged absence of James Starr proved that he had not left the pit since the day Ryan met with him in the shaft. How had the cottage been provisioned since then? The food of these unfortunate people, imprisoned 1,500 feet below the surface of the ground, must have been exhausted by this time. All this passed through Jack's mind, as he saw that by himself he could do nothing to get to the cottage. He had no doubt but that communication had been interrupted with a malevolent intent. At any rate, the authorities must be informed, and that as soon as possible. Jack Ryan bent forward from the landing. Harry! Harry! he shouted with his powerful voice. Harry's name echoed and re-echoed among the rocks, and finally died away in the depths of the shaft. Ryan rapidly ascended the upper ladders and returned to the light of day. Without losing a moment, he reached the calendar station, just caught the express to Edinburgh, and by three o'clock was before the Lord Provost. There his declaration was received. His account was given so clearly that it could not be doubted. Sir William Elphiston, president of the Royal Institution, and not only a colleague, but a personal friend of Starr's, was also informed, and asked to direct the search which was to be made without delay in the mine. Several men were placed at his disposal, supplied with lamps, picks, long rope ladders, not forgetting provisions and cordials. Then guided by Jack Ryan, the party set out for the Aberfoyle mines. The same evening the expedition arrived at the opening of the Yarrow shaft, and descended to the 27th landing, at which Jack Ryan had been stopped a few hours previously. The lamps, fastened to long ropes, were lowered down the shaft, and it was thus ascertained that the last four ladders were wanting. As soon as the lamps had been brought up, the men fixed to the landing a rope ladder, which unrolled itself down the shaft, and all descended one after the other. Jack Ryan's descent was the most difficult, for he went first down the swinging ladders, and fastened them for the others. The space at the bottom of the shaft was completely deserted, but Sir William was much surprised at hearing Jack Ryan exclaim, Here are bits of the ladders, and some of them half burnt. Burnt? repeated Sir William. Indeed, here, sure enough, are cinders which have evidently been cold a long time. Do you think, sir, asked Ryan, that Mr. Starr could have had any reason for burning the ladders, and thus breaking of communication with the world? Certainly not, answered Sir William Elphiston, who had become very thoughtful. Come, my lad, lead us to the cottage. There we shall ascertain the truth. Jack shook his head, as if not at all convinced. Then, taking a lamp from the hands of one of the men, he proceeded with a rapid step along the principal passage of the Dochart pit. The others all followed him. In a quarter of an hour the party arrived at the excavation in which stood Simon Ford's cottage. There was no light in the window. Ryan darted to the door and threw it open. The house was empty. They examined all the rooms in the somber habitation. No trace of violence was to be found. All was in order, as if old Madge had been still here. There was an ample supply of provisions, enough to last the Ford family for several days. 
the absence of the tenants of the cottage was quite unaccountable but was it not possible to find out the exact time they had quitted it yes for in this region where there was no difference of night or day madge was accustomed to mark with a cross each day in her almanac the almanac was pinned up on the wall and there the last cross had been made at the sixth of december that is to say a day after the arrival of james starr to which ryan could positively swear it was clear that on the sixth of december ten days ago simon ford his wife son and guest had quitted the cottage could a fresh exploration of the mine undertaken by the engineer account for such a long absence certainly not it was intensely dark all round the lamps held by the men gave light only just where they were standing suddenly jack ryan uttered a cry look there there his finger was pointing to a tolerably bright light which was moving about in the distance after that light my men exclaimed sir william it's a goblin light said ryan so what's the use we shall never catch it the president and his men little given to superstition darted off in the direction of the moving light jack ryan bravely following their example quickly overtook the headmost of the party. It was a long and fatiguing chase. The lantern seemed to be carried by a being of small size, but singular agility. Every now and then it disappeared behind some pillar, then was seen again at the end of a cross gallery. A sharp turn would place it out of sight, and it seemed to have completely disappeared, when all at once there would be the light as bright as ever. However, they gained very little on it, and Ryan's belief that they could never catch it seemed far from groundless. After an hour of this vain pursuit, Sir William Elphiston and his companions had gone a long way in the southwest direction of the pit, and began to think they really had to do with an impalpable being. Just then it seemed as if the distance between the goblin and those who were pursuing it was becoming less. Could it be fatigued, or did this invisible being wish to entice Sir William and his companions to the place where the inhabitants of the cottage had perhaps themselves been enticed? It was hard to say. The men, seeing that the distance lessened, redoubled their efforts. The light which had before burnt at a distance of more than two hundred feet before them was now seen at less than fifty. The space continued to diminish. The bearer of the lamp became partially visible. Sometimes, when it turned its head, the distinct profile of a human face could be made out, and unless a sprite could assume bodily shape, Jack Ryan was obliged to confess that here was no supernatural being. Then, springing forward, "'Courage, comrades!' he exclaimed. "'It is getting tired. We shall soon catch it up now, and if it can talk as well as it can run, we shall hear a fine story.' But the pursuit had suddenly become more difficult. They were in unknown regions of the mine. Narrow passages crossed each other like the windings of a labyrinth. The bearer of the lamp might escape them as easily as possible, by just extinguishing the light and retreating into some dark refuge. And indeed, thought Sir William, if it wishes to avoid us, why does it not do so? Hitherto there had evidently been no intention to avoid them, but just as the thought crossed Sir William's mind, the light suddenly disappeared, and the party, continuing the pursuit, found themselves before an extremely narrow natural opening in the Skishtus rocks. To trim their lamps, spring forward, and dart through the opening, was for Sir William and his party but the work of an instant. 
but before they had gone a hundred paces along this new gallery much wider and loftier than the former they all stopped short there near the wall lay four bodies stretched on the ground four corpses perhaps james starr exclaimed sir william elphiston harry harry cried ryan throwing himself down beside his friend it was indeed the engineer madge simon and harry ford who were lying there motionless but one of the bodies moved slightly and madge's voice was heard faintly murmuring see to the others help them first sir william jack and their companions endeavored to reanimate the engineer and his friends by getting them to swallow a few drops of brandy they very soon succeeded the unfortunate people shut up in that dark cavern for ten days were dying of starvation they must have perished had they not on three occasions found a loaf of bread and a jug of water set near them no doubt the charitable being to whom they owed their lives was unable to do more for them sir william wondered whether this might not have been the work of the strange sprite who had allured them to the very spot where james starr and his companions lay however that might be the engineer madge simon and harry ford were saved they were assisted to the cottage passing through the narrow opening which the bearer of the strange light had apparently wished to point out to sir william this was a natural opening the passage which james starr and his companions had made for themselves with dynamite had been completely blocked up with rocks laid one upon another so then whilst they had been exploring the vast cavern the way back had been purposely closed against them by a hostile hand. End of chapter 9 Recording by Richard Kilmer The Underground City by Jules Verne Chapter 10 Coal Town Three years after the events which have just been related, the guidebooks recommend it as a great attraction to the numerous tourists who roam over the county of Stirling, a visit of a few hours to the mines of New Aberfoyle. No mine in any country, either in the Old or New World, could present a more curious aspect. To begin with, the visitor was transported without danger or fatigue to a level with the workings at 1,500 feet below the surface of the ground. Seven miles to the southwest of Callander opened a slanting tunnel, adorned with castellated entrance, turrets, and battlements. This lofty tunnel gently sloped straight to the stupendous crypt, hallowed out so strangely in the bowels of the earth. A double line of railway, the wagons being moved by hydraulic power, plied from hour to hour to and from the village, thus buried in the subsoil of the county and which bore the rather ambitious title of Coaltown. Arrived in Coaltown, the visitor found himself in a place where electricity played a principal part as an agent of heat and light. Although the ventilation shafts were numerous, they were not sufficient to admit much daylight into New Aberfoyle, yet it had abundance of light. This was shed from numerous electric discs, some suspended from the vaulted roofs, others hanging on the natural pillars. All, whether suns or stars in size, were fed by continuous currents produced from electromagnetic machines. When the hour of rest arrived, an artificial night was easily produced all over the mine by disconnecting the wires. 
Below the dome lay a lake of an extent to be compared to the Dead Sea of the Mammoth Caves, a deep lake whose transparent waters swarmed with eyeless fish, and to which the engineer gave the name of Loch Malcolm. There, in this immense natural excavation, Simon Ford built his new cottage, which he would not have exchanged for the finest house in Prince's Street, Edinburgh. This dwelling was situated on the shores of the loch, and its five windows looked out on the dark waters, which extended further than the eye could see. Two months later, a second habitation was erected in the neighborhood of Simon Ford's cottage. This was for James Starr. The engineer had given himself body and soul to New Aberfoyle, and nothing but the most imperative necessity ever caused him to leave the pit. There, then, he lived in the midst of his mining world. On the discovery of the new field, all the old colliers had hastened to leave the plough and harrow and resume the pick and mattock. Attracted by the certainty that work would never fail, allured by the high wages which the prosperity of the mine enabled the company to offer for labor, they deserted the open air for an underground life and took up their abode in the mines. The miners' houses built of brick soon grew up in a picturesque fashion, some on the banks of Loch Malcolm, others under the arches which seemed made to resist the weight that pressed upon them, like the piers of a bridge. So was founded Coal Town, situated under the eastern point of Loch Catherine, to the north of the county of Stirling. It was a regular settlement on the banks of Loch Malcolm, a chapel dedicated to St. Giles, overlooked it from the top of a huge rock, whose foot was laved by the waters of the subterranean sea. When this underground town was lighted up by the bright rays thrown from the disks, hung from pillars and arches, its aspect was so strange, so fantastic, that it justified the praise of the guidebooks, and visitors flocked to see it. It is needless to say that the inhabitants of Coal Town were proud of their place. They rarely left their laboring village, in that imitating Simon Ford, who never wished to go out again. The old overman maintained that it always rained up there, and, considering the climate of the United Kingdom, it must be acknowledged that he was not far wrong. All the families in New Aberfoyle prospered well, having, in three years, obtained a certain competency which they could never have hoped to attain on the surface of the county. Dozens of babies, who were born at the time when the works were resumed, had never yet breathed the outer air. This made Jack Ryan remark, It's eighteen months since they were weaned, and they have not yet seen daylight. It may be mentioned here that one of the first to run at the engineer's call was Jack Ryan. The merry fellow had thought it his duty to return to his old trade. But though Melrose Farm had lost Singer and Piper, it must not be thought that Jack Ryan sung no more. On the contrary, the sonorous echoes of New Aberfoyle exerted their strong lungs to answer him. Jack Ryan took up his abode in Simon Ford's new cottage. They offered him a room, which he accepted without ceremony, in his frank and hearty way. Old Madge loved him for his fine character and good nature. She, in some degree, shared his ideas on the subject of the fantastic beings who were supposed to haunt the mine, and the two went alone 
told each other stories wild enough to make one shudder, stories well worthy of enriching the hyperborean mythology. Jack thus became the life of the cottage. He was, besides being a jovial companion, a good workman. Six months after the works had begun, he was made head of a gang of hewers. "'That was good work done, Mr. Ford,' said he, a few days after his appointment. "'You discovered a new field, and though you narrowly escaped paying for the discovery with your life, well, it was not too dearly bought.' "'No, Jack, it was a good bargain we made that time,' answered the old overman. "'But neither Mr. Starr nor I have forgotten that to you we owe our lives.' "'Not at all,' returned Jack. "'You owe them to your son, Harry.' when he had the good sense to accept my invitation to Irving. "'And not to go. Isn't that it?' interrupted Harry, grasping his comrade's hand. "'No, Jack, it is to you, scarcely healed of your wounds, to you who did not delay a day, no, nor an hour, that we owe our being found still alive in the mine.' "'Rubbish, no,' broke in the obstinate fellow. "'I won't have that said, when it's no such thing.' I hurried to find out what had become of you, Harry, that's all. But to give everyone his due, I will add that without that unapproachable goblin... Ah, there we are, cried Ford, a goblin. A goblin, a brownie, a fairy's child, repeated Jack Ryan. A cousin of the fire maidens, an urisk, whatever you like. It's not the less certain that without it we should never have found our way into the gallery from which you could not get out. "'No doubt, Jack,' answered Harry. "'It remains to be seen whether this being was as supernatural as you choose to believe.' "'Supernatural?' exclaimed Ryan. "'But it was as supernatural as a will-o'-the-wisp, "'who may be seen skipping along with his lantern in his hand. "'You may try to catch him, but he escapes like a fairy and vanishes like a shadow. "'Don't be uneasy, Harry. "'We shall see it again some day or other.' "'Well, Jack,' said Simon Ford, "'will of the whisper not. "'We shall try to find it, and you must help us.' "'You'll get into a scrap if you don't take care, Mr. Ford,' "'responded Jack Ryan. "'We'll see about that, Jack. "'We may easily imagine how soon this domain of New Aberfoyle "'became familiar to all the members of the Ford family, "'but more particularly to Harry. "'He learned to know all its most secret ins and outs.' He could even say what point of the surface corresponded with what point of the mine. He knew that above this seam lay the Firth of Clyde, that there extended Loch Lomond and Loch Catrin. Those columns supported a spur of the Gampian Mountains. This vault served as a basement to Dumbarton. Above this large pond passed the Balloch Railway. Here ended the Scottish coast. There began the sea the tumult of which could be distinctly heard during the equinoctial gales. Harry would have been a first-rate guide to these natural catacombs, and all that alpine guides do on their snowy peaks in daylight, he could have done in the dark mine by the wonderful power of instinct. He loved New Aberfoyle. Many times, with his lamp stuck in his hat, did he penetrate its furthest depths. He explored its ponds in a skillfully managed canoe, he even went shooting, for numerous birds had been introduced into the crypt, pintails, snipes, ducks, 
who fed on the fish which swarmed in the deep waters. Harry's eyes seemed made for the dark, just as a sailor's are made for distances. But all this while Harry felt irresistibly animated by the hope of finding the mysterious being whose intervention, strictly speaking, had saved himself and his friends. Would he succeed? He certainly would, if presentiments were to be trusted, but certainly not if he judged by the success which had as yet attended his researches. The attacks directed against the family of the old overman before the discovery of new Aberfoyle had not been renewed. End of chapter 10 Recording by Richard Kilmer, Rio Medina, Texas Recording by Anne Boulay The Underground City by Jules Verne Chapter 11 Hanging by a Thread Although in this way the Ford family led a happy and contented life, yet it was easy to see that Harry, naturally of a grave disposition, became more and more quiet and reserved. Even Jack Ryan, with all his good humor and usually infectious merriment, failed to rouse him to gaiety of manner. One Sunday, it was in the month of June, the two friends were walking together on the shores of Loch Malcolm. Coltown rested from labor. In the world above, stormy weather prevailed. Violent rains fell, and dull sultry vapors brooded over the earth. The atmosphere was most oppressive. Down in Coltown there was perfect calm. No wind, no rain. A soft and pleasant temperature existed instead of the strife of the elements which raged without. What wonder, then, that excursionists from Stirling came in considerable numbers to enjoy the calm fresh air in the recesses of the mine? The electric discs shed a brilliancy of light which the British sun, oftener obscured by fogs than it ought to be, might well envy. Jack Ryan kept talking of these visitors, who passed them in noisy crowds, but Harry paid little attention to what he said. "'I say, do look, Harry!' cried Jack. See what numbers of people come to visit us. Cheer up, old fellow. Do the honors of the place a little better. If you look so glum, you'll make all these outside folks think you envy their life above ground. Never mind me, Jack, answered Harry. You are jolly enough for two. I am sure that's enough. I'll be hanged if I don't feel your melancholy creeping over me, though, exclaimed Jack. I declare my eyes are getting quite dull, my lips are drawn together, my laugh sticks in my throat. I'm forgetting all my songs. Come, man, what's the matter with you? You know well enough, Jack. What? The old story? Yes, the same thoughts haunt me. Ah, poor fellow, said Jack, shrugging his shoulders. If you would only do like me and set all the queer things down to the account of the goblins of the mine, you would be easier in your mind. But, Jack, you know very well that these goblins exist only in your imagination, and that, since the works here have been reopened, not a single one has been seen. That's true, Harry, but if no spirits have been seen, neither has anyone else to whom you could attribute the extraordinary doings we want to account for. I shall discover them. Ah, oh, Harry, Harry, it's not so easy to catch the spirits of New Aberfoyle. 
I shall find out the spirits as you call them, said Harry, in a tone of firm conviction. Do you expect to be able to punish them? Both punish and reward. Remember, if one hand shut us up in that passage, another hand delivered us. I shall not soon forget that. But Harry, how can we be sure that these two hands do not belong to the same body? What can put such a notion in your head, Jack? asked Harry. Well, I don't know. Creatures that live in these holes, Harry, don't you see? They can't be made like us, eh? But they are like us, Jack. Oh, no, don't say that, Harry. Perhaps some madman managed to get in for a time. A madman? No madman would have formed such connected plans, or done such continued mischief as befell us after breaking the ladders. Well, but anyhow, he has done no harm for the last three years, either to you, Harry, or any of your people. No matter, Jack, replied Harry. I am persuaded that this malignant being, whoever he is, has by no means given up his evil intentions. I can hardly say on what I found my convictions. But at any rate, for the sake of the new works, I must and will know who he is and whence he comes. For the sake of the new works, did you say? asked Jack, considerably surprised. I said so, Jack, returned Harry. I may be mistaken, but to me, all that has happened proves the existence of an interest in this mine in strong opposition to ours. Many a time have I considered the matter. I feel almost sure of it. Just consider the whole series of inexplicable circumstances, so singularly linked together. To begin with, the anonymous letter, contradictory to that of my father, at once proves that some man had become aware of our projects, and wished to prevent their accomplishment. Mr. Starr comes to see us at the Docart pit. No sooner does he enter it with me than an immense stone is cast upon us, and communication is interrupted by the breaking of the ladders in the Yarrow shaft. We commence exploring. An experiment, by which the existence of a new vein would be proved, is rendered impossible by stoppage of fissures. Notwithstanding this, the examination is carried out, the vein discovered. We return as we came. A prodigious gust of air meets us. Our lamp is broken. Utter darkness surrounds us. Nevertheless, we make our way along the gloomy passage until, on reaching the entrance, we find it blocked up. There we were, imprisoned. Now, Jack, don't you see in all these things a malicious intent? Ah, yes, believe me, some being hitherto invisible, but not supernatural, as you will persist in thinking, was concealed in the mine. For some reason known only to himself, he strove to keep us out of it, was there, did I say? I feel an inward conviction that he is there still, and probably prepares some terrible disaster for us. Even at the risk of my life, Jack, I am resolved to discover him. Harry spoke with an earnestness which strongly impressed his companion. Well, Harry, said he, if I am forced to agree with you in certain points, won't you admit that some kind of fairy or brownie, by bringing bread and water to you, was the means of jack my friend interrupted harry it is my belief that the friendly person whom you will persist in calling a spirit exists in the mind as certainly as the criminal we speak of and i mean to seek them both in the most distant recesses of the mine but inquired jack have you any possible clue to guide your search perhaps i have listen to me five miles west of new aberfoyle 
under the solid rock which supports Ben Lomond, there exists a natural shaft, which descends perpendicularly into the vein beneath. A week ago I went to ascertain the depth of this shaft. While sounding it, and bending over the opening as my plumb line went down, it seemed to me that the air within was agitated, as though beaten by huge wings. Some bird must have gotten lost among the lower galleries, replied Jack. But that is not all, Jack. This very morning I went back to the place, and listening attentively, I thought I could detect a sound like a sort of groaning. Groaning? cried Jack. That must be nonsense. It was a current of air. Unless indeed some ghost. I shall know tomorrow what it is, said Harry. Tomorrow? answered Jack, looking at his friend. Yes, tomorrow I am going down into the abyss. Harry, that will be a tempting of providence. No, Jack, providence will aid me in the attempt. Tomorrow you and some of our comrades will go with me to that shaft. I will fasten myself to a long rope, by which you can let me down, and draw me up at a given signal. May I depend upon you, Jack? Well, Harry, said Jack, shaking his head, I will do as you wish me, but I tell you all the same, you are very wrong. Nothing venture, nothing win, said Harry, in a tone of decision. Tomorrow morning, then, at six o'clock, be silent and farewell. It must be admitted that Jack's fears were far from groundless. Harry would expose himself to very great danger, supposing the enemy he sought for lay concealed at the bottom of the pit into which he was going to descend. It did not seem likely that such was the case, however. Why in the world, repeated Jack Ryan, should he take all this trouble into account for a set of facts so very easily and simply explained by the supernatural intervention of the spirits of the mine? But, notwithstanding his objections to the scheme, Jack Ryan and three miners of his gang arrived next morning with Harry at the mouth of the opening of the suspicious shaft. Harry had not mentioned his intentions either to James Starr or to the old overman. Jack had been discreet enough to say nothing. Harry had provided himself with a rope about two hundred feet long. It was not particularly thick, but very strong, sufficiently so to sustain his weight. His friends were to let him down into the gulf. His pulling the cord was to be the signal to withdraw him. The opening into this shaft or well was twelve feet wide. A beam was thrown across like a bridge, so that the cord passing over it should hang down the center of the opening, and save Harry from striking against the sides in his descent. He was ready. Are you still determined to explore this abyss? whispered Jack Ryan. Yes, I am, Jack. The cord was fastened round Harry's thighs and under his arms, to keep him from rocking. Thus supported, he was free to use both his hands. A safety lamp hung at his belt, also a large, strong knife in a leather sheath. Harry advanced to the middle of the beam, around which the cord was passed. Then his friends began to let him down, and he slowly sank into the pit. As the rope caused him to swing gently round and round, the light of his lamp fell in turns on all points of the side walls, so that he was able to examine them carefully. These walls consisted of pit coal, and so smooth that it would be impossible to ascend them. Harry calculated that he was going down at the rate of about a foot per second, so that he had time to look about him and be ready for any event. During two minutes, that is to say, to the depth of about 120 feet, 
the descent continued without any incident. No lateral gallery opened from the side walls of the pit, which was gradually narrowing into the shape of a funnel. But Harry began to feel a fresher air rising from beneath, whence he concluded that the bottom of the pit communicated with a gallery of some description in the lowest part of the mine. The cord continued to unwind. Darkness and silence were complete. If any living being whatever had sought refuge in the deep and mysterious abyss, he had either left it, or if there, by no movement did he in the slightest way betray his presence. Harry, becoming more suspicious the lower he got, now drew his knife, and held it in his right hand. At a depth of a hundred and eighty feet, his feet touched the lower point, and the cord slackened and unwound no further. Harry breathed more freely for a moment. One of the fears he entertained had been that, during his descent, the cord might be cut above him, but he had seen no projection from the walls behind which anyone could have been concealed. The bottom of the abyss was quite dry. Harry, taking the lamp from his belt, walked round the place, and perceived he had been right in his conjectures. An extremely narrow passage led aside out of the pit. He had to stoop to look into it, and only by creeping could it be followed, but as he wanted to see in which direction it led, and whether another abyss opened from it, he lay down on the ground and began to enter it on hands and knees. An obstacle speedily arrested his progress. He fancied he could perceive by touching it that a human body lay across the passage. A sudden thrill of horror and surprise made him hastily draw back, but he again advanced and felt more carefully. His senses had not deceived him, a body did indeed lie there, and he soon ascertained that, although icy cold at the extremities, there was some vital heat remaining. In less time than it takes to tell it, Harry had drawn the body from the recess to the bottom of the shaft, and, seizing his lamp, he cast its lights on what he had found, exclaiming immediately, Why, it is a child! The child still breathed, but so very feebly that Jack expected it to cease every instant. Not a moment was to be lost. He must carry this poor little creature out of the pit, and take it home to his mother as quickly as he could. He eagerly fastened the cord round his waist, stuck on his lamp, clasped the child to his breast with his left arm, and keeping his right hand free to hold the knife, he gave the signal agreed on, to have the rope pulled up. It tightened at once. He began the ascent. Harry looked around him with redoubled care, for more than his own life was now in danger. For a few minutes all went well. No accident seemed to threaten him, when suddenly he heard the sound of a great rush of air from beneath, and looking down, he could dimly perceive through the gloom a broad mass arising until it passed him, striking him as it went by. It was an enormous bird, of what sort he could not see. It flew upwards on mighty wings, then paused, hovered, and dashed fiercely down upon Harry, who could only wield his knife in one hand. He defended himself and the child as well as he could, but the ferocious bird seemed to aim all its blows at him alone. Afraid of cutting the cord, he could not strike it as he wished, and the struggle was prolonged, while Harry shouted with all his might in hopes of making his comrades hear. He soon knew they did, for they pulled the rope up faster. A distance of about eighty feet remained to be got over. The bird ceased its direct attack, but increased the horror and danger of his situation by rushing at the cord, 
clinging to it just out of his reach, and endeavoring, by pecking furiously, to cut it. Harry felt overcome with terrible dread. One strand of the rope gave way, and it made them sink a little. A shriek of despair escaped his lips. A second strand was divided, and the double burden now hung suspended by only half the cord. Harry dropped his knife, and by a superhuman effort succeeded, at the moment the rope was giving way, in catching hold of it with his right hand above the cut made by the beak of the bird. But powerfully as he held it in his iron grasp, he could feel it gradually slipping through his fingers. He might have caught it and held on with both hands by sacrificing the life of the child he supported in his left arm. The idea crossed him, but was banished in an instant, although he believed himself quite unable to hold out until drawn to the surface. For a second he closed his eyes, believing they were about to plunge back into the abyss. He looked up once more. The huge bird had disappeared. His hand was at the very extremity of the broken rope. When, just as his convulsive grasp was failing, he was seized by the men and with the child was placed on the level ground. The fearful strain of anxiety removed, a reaction took place, and Harry fell fainting into the arms of his friends. End of chapter 11